Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Before Sports Entertainment Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Precious Peter Glover, and I'm joined today by Trey Gamble. What's up, Trey? Man, I figured out something today, Peter. I asked a couple questions to a couple people that, you know, I've never asked you, but I found out why people think alcohol makes them smart. Why's that? Because it made Bud wiser. (laughs) (laughs) Great dad joke, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) We had to throw something in. So, me and Trey are going to take it tonight. Ashley is kind of under the weather, and uh, we have got together to do our list of the top five greatest wrestling managers of all time. Uh, When we did this, we were thinking, now, Trey, did you do managers or did you do manager slash valet? Man, I actually uh, came up with 11 names and only one of them was female, believe it or not. But I, I did my top five and female was like number nine on my list of 11. Because, you know, Trey, what do you think? What's the difference between a manager and valet? Well, you know, valet is typically associated with like, when you think of like gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Precious, Randy Savage and uh, Elizabeth, you know, the, the female, the standard like uh, Gold Dust and Marlena doesn't really do a lot, just the female eye candy. But when you're a manager, and I'll throw a name in that I didn't even put on my list. China started out as muscle manager. That's true. And but she never did nothing, just stood there with the arms folded, never said a word for over a year. But she was actually the valet slash manager of Triple H DX until she became a wrestler. Elizabeth and uh Precious and Sunshine, they were more or less just eye candy. They didn't really like when you get to a like territory, baby doll, she got into it with the guys. You know, Medusa, Sherry Martell. They were slash manager slash valets that could actually like China get physical with you. Yeah, and going through my list, I had to take that out because there was a couple of them. I was like, oh, she's you know, I, I I've seen a lot where some people argue that Sonny was actually a manager, but I kind of went more with the valet stuff. So when me and Trey are doing this, we're really thinking of manager style. So Trey. I'm going to let you start off, man, with uh, your number five. Well, my number five is probably going to shock you. And if Ashley was here, it'd probably blow his mind that I have this person at number five and not a lot higher. I'm saying William Alvin Moody, Purple Pringle the third, or Paul Bear, whichever name you wanted to choose. Are you serious? That's actually what I have for my number four. He's my number five because – do you know he managed The Undertaker two different times, once in WWE and once before? He did it before? When Undertaker's first match in WCCW against Bruiser Brody, Percy Pringle was Texas Reds' manager, and Undertaker was a mass Texas Red. Wow. And it was one match. That's something. And, you know, that's the thing is I always thought it was fascinating that when he went to the WWE, you know, he was going to be Paul Bearer. And they saw that because he actually had a degree in mortuary science, which I Correct. thought was hysterical. But fit perfect, man. You couldn't ask for a better person to play it. No. And, and you know, he used to freak me out, too, when I was a little kid. I mean, he's pale white. He sounded like a ghost. I mean, The Undertaker was pure fear back in, like, 1992. What what Brody Piper say when he first came out of Survivor Series? Look at the size of that ham hock. 
What? Well, I know you know this. Uh, I was looking up. You know, I didn't know that Percy Pringle actually managed Lex Luger, Rick Rude, Steve Austin, and uh, Coco. Your your favorite Coco Beware. Yeah, the the funny Hall of Famer that shouldn't be in. Um, yeah, he managed so many people. And look in WCCW World Class when he was Percy Pringle. Remember, we talked about several episodes ago about uh, the flamboyant Eric Embry and Chris Adams and those guys, mm-hmm. the missing link. You know, he was like Gary Hart in WCCW. They had like two just go-to managers, and he was one of them. And he was bleach blonde at the time, dude. Was he still like really fat then? Oh, yeah, he was a round mound of rebound, buddy. <laughs> uh you know, I always thought Paul Bear, you know, when we talk about the Attitude Era, obviously we talk about Stone Cold and the Rock, but, you know, Undertaker Kane was one of the greatest storylines of that time. And it couldn't have been done without Paul Bear, you know, being the Undertaker's father, Kane's father. I mean, we all know it was kayfabe, but he made it work because he went from being the Undertaker and betraying him to being Kane's guy. And look, and when, and look, and when he cracked the urn over the Undertaker's head and betrayed the Undertaker, like, like really? He was managing mankind. That's right. I forgot he was with mankind, too. So, I mean, you look at the trifecta of the, the, the supernatural Attitude Era superstars. Paul Bearer, Percy Pringle, William Moody, he had the trifecta, man. He sure did. And he actually had a 30-year career. Uh, we lost him in 2013. And, by the way, rest in peace, Virgil and Ole Anderson. I know that happened this week. And Oh, yeah. Uh, only two days ago, Virgil, this morning, I believe. And you know what they say. They die in three. So, who's coming before Saturday, bro? Oh, man, I know. I- it's scary. It's scary to think about it, man, because Ole was two days ago. Then Virgil today was shocked to me. Yeah. I Actually, before I got on here, I read that – uh. Virgil has some dementia problems and he's been in the hospital, which, you know, I didn't know, but me neither, buddy. Did you get the, uh, the video I sent you from busted open doing the 10 bell salute to him today? Oh yeah. That was pretty cool that they did that in the middle of the show. When they got the news, they immediately stopped what they were doing and made the rest of the show about Virgil. Yes. And I love it when the WWE and, you know, other companies do that for wrestlers because it really shows the respect. So Absolutely. What you got for number five? Buddy? All right, man. Number five. I thought you might like this one. When, again, and you mentioned her name before because Sensational Sherry was a great manager. And because to me, I know she was a wrestler before, but she kind of took it a woman man, valet being a manager to the extreme. Her rivalry with, you know, Miss Elizabeth and she made the Macho King turn heel. And I love that. Yes. Yeah. Look. And I tell you, when when we were discussing, when you asked me what I thought made a difference between the two, I brought up Sherry, I brought up Medusa, and I brought up China, and you can also throw in Luna Vachon, legit badass women. They just weren't there for eye candy. That's right. They did a job, and that's the thing. Like, remember the barbershop with you know Shawn Michaels kicking Marty Jannetty. Who did Shawn Michaels get managed by after that? Oh, the sensational share. It's like, you know, if she's around, you're going to be a bad guy. And it was part of the thing because, you know, Sherry was an attractive woman, but she made herself 
kind of unattractive through all the paint and all the makeup that she caked on just because she wanted to be the heel. And her voice. That's Oh, her voice was just like, would she please shut up? But you know, the thing about it is, what would Elizabeth do for the Macho Man other than fall down? That's right. Well, and, and you're exactly right. It's, it's a damsel in distress. That's why everybody liked it. It's your simple fairy tale, tale story with Macho Man Mariner. But yes, I'm not trying to knock on Elizabeth, but she really didn't do very much. Yeah, you see, and that's that's the thing about like Marlena when she was with Gold Dust. The last thing I remember about her more than anything is when China ragdolled her. Well, that was awesome. Oh yeah, I thought she broke her neck. I did too. She slung her around like a like a a. a like a raggedy ann doll for real she sure did man and uh, but but sherry dude sherry could hold her on with the men if you wanted to have an intergender match back in the day it wasn't no bras and panties and mud bath matches and stuff like that with sherry sherry could get down and dirty with the guys yes she could and you know she actually went on at ecw later on and uh uh i think she didn't she manage like shane douglas or somebody like that I want to say Shane Douglas is correct, but I don't want us to misquote ourselves. But I would lean more towards Shane Douglas than, and the only other person I would say would be the Raven or Tommy Dreamer if I was guessing. Yeah, and what did she do in WCW? This let's see if you know it. Who? What tag team did she manage? Harlem Heat when Booker T said the N word. That's right, Sister Sherry, baby. That's what she was called. Uh, that was uh, yeah. If if you need to go back and look up. Uh, Booker T's uh, mess up. It's pretty funny because you could see him go, oh, man, I can't believe I said it. And Sherry's trying not to laugh in the back. Look, she she turns her head, grinning from ear to ear, and Booker's biting his bottom lip. Stevie Ray dropped his head, and Gene <laughs> Oakland's eyes got as big as saucer. <laughs> oh, man, that's – Look, I can remember every face on that screen when that happened because I'm like, tell me, like, what's Booker saying? Tell me you just didn't say that. <laughs> uh, That's before Booker made that phrase famous. Oh, Booker T, man. All right. Who you got for number four? I told you mine. Mine was you, William Moody. Who you got? Uh, you had Paul Bear, Percy Pringle, William Moody for your number four. My number four, going back to the territory days, as I've told you, I, I text you, I said, I'm going to have a couple territory guys, so – this one started in the territory. He was originally a member of the Gentry's music group, the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. No freaking way, dude. I, that's, that's my number four. That's my number three. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds think alike, bro. Yes, sir. Man, but I'm, you look at everybody he managed, though, not just the Hart Foundation, but when he was in Memphis, I mean, his Memphis career, he had the first family of wrestling. And you know who that included during his Memphis days? Tell me. Hulk Hogan, King Kong Bundy, Ravishing Rick Rude, Leaping Lanny Poffo, Jim Neidhart, Kamala, Macho Man, Ox Baker, Eddie Gilbert, Iron Sheik, and Kevin Sullivan. That's a crew right there, dude. That's just territory wrestling, not to mention what he did with Greg Valentine, the Honky Tonk Man, Million Dollar Man, the Mountie, all that in WWE. Wow. That dude's been around them all, and of course he claimed the fame is kissing Hulk Hogan's butt all the way to WCW and Thunder in Paradise. But you know what? 
he, he's he actually still looks the same for uh, I think he's like eighty years old now. I mean, he's old. Jimmy Hart is two years older than my dad, and my dad said to be seventy eight. Jimmy Hart just turned eighty. Isn't that bad that that you know your your dad's age from wrestling? Like I know my mom's uh, was born in nineteen fifty three because. Hulk Hogan was as well. That's how I always kept up with her birthday. That's very sad, but yes, <laughs> same way. Look, but see, I know my dad's birthday like the back of my hand, just like I know my mom's birthday, but I knew Jimmy Hart was a year or two older. And when I saw 1944, I know my dad's 46, so I know what my dad is. And I know Jimmy Hart was born on New Year's Day, 1944. Yeah. But the, he got his start as the Gentry's. A music group. That's right. That's right. I'd say my, my mom was born July 14th, 1953. I think that's when Hulk was. That's how that's how I was. So, oh, you got a Hulk Hogan's birthday. But, yes, I was actually thinking about that because uh, didn't they have a hit back in, the, like, the 60s or 70s? Uh, the Gentry's music hit, if I'm not mistaken, Peter, I did research that. Uh, keep on dancing in 1965. It was a the Billboard Top 100. Yes, it went platinum because it went. It sold millions, and uh, I think the record garnered like band appearance on on TV shows such as like Where the Action Is, Shindig, Hula Boo, whatever those things are. But uh, you know they actually. I think they were on American Bandstand too. That's right, and they toured with the Beach Boys and Sonny and Cher, which just kind of shows you that like the dude is a genius. You know, I think we and you discussed a while back how we thought, I thought that Sensational Sherry sung Shawn Michaels' Sexy Boy song, and you said, nope, it was Jimmy Hart. Look, he 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 was the mastermind, like, behind so many musical entrance themes because of his musical background. Before, what's his name, uh, the guy who did it for WWE for so long that they got rid of? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about, the guy. Jim Johnson. That, Jim Johnson. Jimmy Hart was the guy that was doing it before him and Hogan went to WCW. Jimmy Hart came up with uh, the American Dream, Dusty Rose, Common Man theme. He came up with Demolition. Demolition is a great one. He came, I mean, I've heard him do interviews where he was just ripping off like 20 to 30 80s, 90s wrestling entrance things that he made. And, you know, the thing about him, too, is, like, he was known as the manager of champions. You know, he, he wasn't somebody that just, just lo- like, pretty much everybody, you said it earlier, became a champion. You know, he arrived in WWE just prior to WrestleMania. Uh, and I think he was in the corner with Greg the Hammer Valentine, and uh, it was for a title yes. defense against the Junkyard Dog. But That's correct. He actually goes on and what i remember most was being the manager of the honky-tonk man uh yes yes and at that time the longest reigning intercontinental champion but what really to me that i saw with this guy that i hadn't seen with anything else is that he used his microphone as a foreign object in so many matches and i thought that was really cool because the heel would win due to a you know, megaphone. Yeah, the megaphone. Not only that, he yelled in at the whole match, and it got on your freaking nerves. Oh, it got on your nerves, man. And he, he wouldn't shut up either. I mean, look, and his, and his voice is not annoying. He actually has a decent sounding voice. Yes, he does. 
But he just had that thing pointed right at the camera, man, and you was like, shut up. And you know somebody else he was with that I don't think they ever won gold, but I really liked them. And I almost said this the other day about going into the Hall of Fame was the Nasty Boys. Yes, I forgot he was with them. You are correct. Uh, uh, knobs and Sags, man. I, I, I absolutely love them, and I hope they get their – but he made them – I mean, he made them really good. In my opinion, I thought he was the one that pretty much kind of got them onto another playing field because they were trying to, you know, they had a lot of title, like try to win the titles. They never won it. But when he was with Jimmy, you were like, all right, they're probably going to be champs soon because he only manages champs. And and see, they were missing that one thing. And when they when they added him for the short period that they added him, it became believable. They actually have a shot now. That's right. Because Jimmy Hart, is, he's not the dirtiest player in the game, but he can give the one distraction they never were able to get to get him over the hump. That is correct, sir. Well, we're you know, we're kind of two for two on that. So uh, that was my number three, and that was your number four, correct? So, Trey, we're going on to your number three. Go ahead. Tell me what you got. All right. Going back to um, kind of territory days, then to uh, – NWA, WCW days. I'm going with James J. Dillon. J.J. Dillon, the manager of the Four Horsemen. That's a good one. I don't have that one, but I I thought about it. And the reason why I said that, because he could get in the ring if you needed him to, because he appeared in one of the, I think, one or two of the war games. He did some uh, tag matches with them. He could get physical. But if you think of who was in the Horsemen when he was their manager, are you ready for this? Tell me. Rick Flair, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, the late great Ole Anderson, Lex Luger, and Barry Windham were all part of the Horsemen at one time when JJ was their manager. Wow, that's 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 a smorgasbord of just upper echelon talent, bro. And he he was just right there with them, and he looked apart. He looked like he belonged with the Horsemen, the elite. He could get physical just like the Horsemen, and he could talk the talk for them too. Yes, he could. And, uh, you know, besides being, you know, a professional wrestler and a manager, you know, he did a lot behind the scenes for a lot of people as well with uh, being a yeah. front office exec for the WWF. And, I mean. NWA. Yep. TNA. I mean, he, um, do you know he actually uh, had a Madison Square Garden Intercontinental title match in 1984? Against Tito Santana. And he lost by a flying forearm. <laughs> you know that I love. The, I love the old school like finisher moves, flying forearm. And you know, I was hearing the other night. Uh, you know, we used to call it the sleeper hold or the million dollar dream. You know, they've changed that now because of MMA. It's oh, it's a rear naked choke. It's like no, it's a sleeper hold. Well, what is uh, what is they uh, call it for Shayna Baszler the Kikita Club? Yes. And what is this Samoa Joe's same thing, ain't it? No, okay. So his is a coquina clutch. Okay. He has something different that they call it. Uh, because I was I saw Raw the other night and I was like, that's that's just 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 a uh, sleeper hold. Basically, yes, it's a rear naked choke in, in MMA, but it's a sleeper hold in wrestling. <laughs> I know, dude. It's but I think the only difference is they say don't put their hand across your forehead. They put it by your behind your ear. Yep. Is that the only difference that you see in it? it yeah, and I think it has to do to where, you know, MMA got really big after like, you know, 2000. And now that TKO, 
owns it. I think they're trying to like make sure they call it a rear naked choke just because they don't want their product to be called. Well, that's scripted. They do it in the WWE. We don't say the F word on here. So you know what I mean? Yeah, we get the F out. <laughs> that's right. We get the F out. Which... But hey, but let me ask you this, Peter. Go ahead. So, the Kikita Clutch, whatever they call what Shayna Baszler does, the Nuraragi, whatever, or the rear naked choke. Isn't a chokehold illegal in wrestling? Supposed to be. You're exactly right. But, but you notice Samoa Joe and uh, Shayna Baszler, they don't ever count them or disqualify them. Nope. Just like uh, Logan Paul's right hand, you know, because it is technically. Yeah, they never say open your fist. Right. So people that are listening that don't know that, one of the typical wrestling things is when you hit, you're not supposed to hit with a closed fist. So it's more just a slap or a chop. But that's forearm. But yes. And that's why the the referees constantly saying stuff to them, which a great referee, if you don't know, is when you really don't notice in a match. But uh yeah, I always I always thought that was very interesting as well. But yeah, I just think it it's just it's just crazy, Peter, how me and you come from totally different wrestling backgrounds from when I started and when you started and what you were into and what I was into. And here we are, we're through three each, and we've got two of the same each. Well, I'm going to tell you, you know, when I was a kid, Video Library was down the street, and I would literally rent nothing but old wrestling tapes. So they had, like, 1981 all the way up. So it was basically, that's all I did. Saturdays, Friday nights, you know, people are watching normal stuff. I'm watching wrestling as as a seven, eight-year-old kid. and that's kind of how it opened my eyes to a lot of these older people like Jimmy Hart. And I'd see him all the time with so many different people. And I was like, that guy's annoying, but he's good. Well, so your number three was Jimmy Hart, correct? That is correct. Same as my number four. And, and, I, I, and I'm going to be, look, it's going to be crazy if we have another one the same. Because- uh, we, we might. In the top two, I promise you might have one the same. Okay, because I'm going to tell you, at the end, we all know what Ashley's would be, but we won't say it until the end. Uh, I think I could pick blindly if you don't know Ashley's, and I didn't know. I think we could blindly pick three of his five very easily in the correct order. No, there's no doubt about it. All right, so number two for me, because we okay. are on number two, correct? Yes, because okay. you had Jimmy Hart number three, correct? All right, number two is a little bit new school slash old school, but, man, he is – to the wise man, and that is Paul Heyman. <laughs> you had him too, didn't you? Yeah, I had him higher than you. No, gosh, man. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I remember him actually in WCW as Paul E. Dangerously because correct, he always had the Zach Morris phone from Say by the Bell, and I'm like, look, well, that guy's cool. He's got like a cell phone. I mean, this is the early 90s, and you never saw that. So it's like he must be important. And he had that, you know, actually had hair then. He had long hair and a baseball cap on. But if you know anything about Paul Heyman, which I know you do, I mean, the guy is – since he was 13 years old, he was following wrestlers around. Photographer, man. Photographer, driving around with classy Freddie Blassie going from town to town. If you can imagine, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, wrestled six to seven nights a week. And Paul was 13 years old, and he just went there and took pictures and was some around the, some of the greatest guys and would get in their cars and travel with them just to soak up the knowledge of everything about professional wrestling. 
Hey, man, look, one of the things that made me, because I'm going to tell you, we ain't, my number one was your number two. I'm just going to go on and say it because there ain't no sense in rehashing him again in a few minutes. Let's go on and get it, get it out the way now. Do it. He was top two for you. He was number one for me. But Paul E. Dangerously, the Dangerous Alliance, if you think about the members of that group when he had them in WCW, you had Larry Zabisco, Arn Anderson, Rick Rude, Steve Austin, and beautiful Bobby Eaton, and Medusa. Yes. And you talk about a faction that they never used correctly that could have just rivaled the Horsemen back in the day at that time frame because the Horsemen were basically on the way out. That's right. The, the, see, and you think about it, the Paul Heyman guys in WWE, it wasn't just Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns. See, a punk was one. Curtis Axel, Mr. Kennedy was one. Paul Heyman guys. And that's the thing. I wish they would make Rhea Ripley a Paul Heyman girl. That would be awesome. But I, she doesn't need a mouthpiece because she can talk the, very good on the microphone. See, and that's what I wanted to say about Brock is because we all know Brock's prodigy. I mean, coming out of being like the NCAA champ for, you know, wrestling, I think for two years. And he, he comes out and he's huge. Yeah. But – he can't talk. And, you know, in wrestling, you have to be able to talk. So what do they do? They give him Paul Heyman. And he becomes one of the most successful champs ever because of Paul Heyman. I mean, when you have a catch line that says, hello, ladies and gentlemen, my name is, and everybody says, Paul Heyman. I mean, you're something. And think about Roman Reigns, dude. Would the Roman Reigns bloodline gimmick be as good without Paul? Mm-mm. Not at all. I, I mean, it's like Ashley was talking about the other day. The little things he does that nobody will notice except some people, like you and I notice. Like, it, it's just so good. And Paul Heyman is going to go down as probably one of the greatest minds in wrestling. Uh, we could say managers, but also one of the greatest minds. I just oh. myself. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, with WrestleMania being in Philadelphia this year, I could see them putting him in the Hall of Fame, but I don't think he'd want to go in before some of the talent that he had in ECW gets a chance to go in. And and I think Triple H is smart enough to keep him around as long as he can because I remember he was running SmackDown, I think, in the early 2000s, and that's when SmackDown got so much better in Raw because Paul Heyman was booking it. And as you know, I mean, ECW in the early mid nineties was all booked by Paul and it was great. And he had like hardly any money doing it. Oh, look, uh, I heard uh, Chris Jericho give an interview. He said, Paul Heyman was the, he could, when he, when Jericho worked for ECW now, he said, Paul Heyman would not pay him what he was supposed to pay him. But Jericho said, Paul Heyman would give him a check for $250 and have plus $50 for a bonus for a job well done. Jericho said, I forgot the Sun Gun owed me $500. He gave me $250 plus a $50 bonus. That's all I saw is I got a bonus. Wow. He said, so basically he shorted me $200 for like three months straight. But I didn't even think about it because he would put 
fifty dollar bonus on there to make it three hundred out of two. When he wrote it for two fifty, he'd add a fifty dollar bonus to it. And I forgot he was supposed to pay me five hundred. <laughs> well, you know, the the thing about it too is he had some of the people that mentored him or he looked up to was some of the greats, and that was Captain Lou Albano, uh, Freddie Blassie. Yeah, uh, the Grand Wizard, uh, Ernie Roth. I mean, these are Ernie Lad. Yeah, these are guys yeah. that are, I mean, great themselves. I mean, when you when you look at greatness and you become great yourself, I mean, you have to have a good mentor, and that's exactly we, what we, he had. Do you know how Stone Cold Steve Austin before he was Stone Cold? Steve Austin ended up in ECW before he ended up in WWE after Eric Bischoff fired. Tell me. He called Paul Heyman. He said, hey, man, I just got fired. Paul said, well, you're injured. We can't use you, but you know what we can do? He said, what? Sounds like you've got a lot to say. Come and just let you have a mic and say whatever you want to say on our television show. No editing. And that's when Stone Cold basically got his attitude and went over there. He was dogging out Hogan. He was dogging out Bischoff. He was dogging out everybody on a live mic at ECW, and he never once got in the ring. Wow. And then he also Vince signed him. He became the ringmaster. The ringmaster, yeah. Vince has messed up a lot of things. He's done some good. Not only his personal life. <laughs> that as well. But, man, he's, he's just had some stupid ideas that just didn't work. And you think about it, though, Paul Heyman hadn't really had that kind of stupid idea because I think Paul trusts the wrestler where Vince, as we know, is just kind of crazy and thinks everything is better with him thinking it, unlike Paul. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man, that's a that's a good one. I, I, I almost put him at my number one. So don't don't feel bad. That was that was my number two. Well, he's my number one. So I guess I'll throw you my number two and we'll save the big number one for somebody that hadn't been mentioned. All right. My number two, which should be no shock to you, not to Ashley. My man, Jim Cornette. See, that's that's who I thought Ashley would put as number one. It's not a bad choice, Peter. No, it, it, it's, it's not a bad choice either. And I'm going to be honest with you. I thought about him top five, but I'm not as familiarized with him as you guys are because I know you guys grew up around the territory. Yeah, around the territory. So, man, enlighten me why he is one of the best well well, first off the most most shameful thing wwe has not done is put jim Cornette and the midnight express in their hall of fame agreed that's number one then you got the heavenly bodies with tom pritchard you know as part of it and then did the scaffold match the night of the skywalkers with the road warriors when he hung from the bottom of the scaffold to get away from road warrior animal and he dropped, and Big Bubba missed him, and he tore every ligament and tendon in both knees. Oof. And then, then Dusty Rose was a booker and told Cornette, we want you to get a little color, baby, tonight. Cornette went out there in an all-white suit and bled like a stuck hog, and Dusty said a little color. <laughs> and this was on TV. And then when Cornette came back, he said, how was that? Dusty said, I said, a little color, baby. Just a little, not a lot. That's funny. Yeah, your Dusty's pretty good, by the way. Yeah, yeah, but look, 
just cornet, just and I know, you know, we had a failure to communicate last week, and I ended up uh, ex uh, voted off the island for seven days, <laughs> as we'll say in a polite way. But I'll say it again. I hope Ashley feels better. I love him. I'm gonna give him his flowers like the WWE should have gave Bobby Eaton his flowers before he died. He's gonna cut you out on that, but yeah, I agree. He can edit it out, but it's <laughs> on there, buddy. Man. But no, it, it, it's just, man, there's no reason Jim Cornette in the Midnight Express, Jim Cornette is a top five manager at all. I have him as my number two manager of all time. I think that's a good one. Look, let me ask you this, though. This is what I remember growing up, besides his little okay. annoying voice, you know, and I, I, I've all, I mean, when you look at him, you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's annoying. He, he's heel all over him. But he had that stupid tennis racket. And I always like, why does he have a tennis racket? Does he ever explain why he had it? Well, to my knowledge, I think it was just something for him to hold on to. Uh-huh. Like, like Jimmy Hart didn't used to always come out with a megaphone. That's true. He came out with a cane, like a black, like a magician's cane, black cane with white tips. Hmm. That's what he used to come out with. Paul Paul uh, Heyman, Paul Dangersley, came out with the telephone. Yep. A cordless phone that was the size of a payphone. And then Paul Ellering always came out with the Wall Street Journal. I think it was, you know, not to be factual, I just think it was something because he needed something in his hands. But he could also load the tennis racket up because it had the case around it. You never know what's inside that case with that racket. That's a good point. So it was a, it was also a way to deceive people, if that makes any sense. Because you know he always wore a suit, and his suits were basically pastel Easter suits most of the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he'd wear a solid white tuxedo, which I thought was stupid. Go back to your pink jacket, your green pants, and your, your blue tie. <laughs> and your red tennis racket case. You know, but I tell you, he could talk though. Cornette could talk. Boy, could he talk! No, there's no doubt. I mean, I listened to, uh, listened to three hours of him on a weekly basis, and he never, he never get a word in, in edgewise. I mean, he was a good on the mic. There's no doubt. Well, he, you know, when he was in Memphis, you know. He was really just really getting his foot in the door in Memphis. And I think him and Lawler and Jeff, uh, Jerry Jarrett actually got really close. And that's what kickstarted him into being somebody was his relationship with them. So when he went to Mid-South or, he, you know, he started Smoky Mountain. Yeah, I knew that. And then OVW, he was there. He's been at TNA. Now, he will never go to AEW. No, he <laughs> he can't stand it. The spot fest, you mean that that they can't do? The bucks of young, the buckaroos, and calling Dean Ambrose the plumber. That, that, oh, that's oh, hilarious. Look, that is that is awesome. And then you know he's the one to where I used to get Antonio Kanoki from. <laughs> oh, okay. So that was my number. Two, which my number one was your number two, so I'm I'm ready to see who you got as number one because I don't think I can guess it if you're not gonna say Mr. Fuji. Don't call him a weasel. Don't call him a Bobby Heenan. Bobby the Brain Heenan, baby. 
I didn't even have him on my top five, bro. Dude, I not only was a great manager, but he's to me, he's one of the best color commentators. I mean, you him and Gorilla together. Oh my god. Yes. You think of all the WWE superstars that Heenan got. And this is what's so cool about it is that if you were a superstar, you came from the Heenan family. I mean, that's a moniker that meant to show you the, the strength of Bobby Heenan. I mean, it was like, it was pretty much a stable. I mean, you think people that were there, you had like Nick Bockwinkle. I know you guys like. Yes, Bockwinkle was amazing in his day, man. That's right. The uh, Blackjacks, John Studd, King Kong Bundy. I remember him more for Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, uh, the Brain Busters. Uh, I mean, even Andre the Giant. Uh, yeah, how he he swerved Andre into turning heel, man. And I will never forget that because I think I've said on the podcast before, he actually did his uh, surgery on his knee because there was it was K it was kayfabe. They put him out. Andre got out. I can't remember how, but he was having surgery up at uh, Baptist Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi. And I made Andre the Giant a card that probably never got in there. But I, <laughs> I, I said, I'm sorry that you believe Bobby Heenan was going to be a good manager, but I knew you were in the wrong, Andre, but I forgive you because I was livid he would go. Because if you go with Bobby the Brain Indian, you're you're a bad guy. You know, that's the thing we see about this. It, we we, we kind of have all these guys. Are there any good managers? <laughs> good guy manager? Yeah. Man, if I had to say one good guy manager – if there ever was one, was the guy, the uh, Mexican guy that, with the glasses that managed Shawn Michaels. I'm trying to think who that was. You know who I'm talking about, though. Yes, I do. When uh, when Shawn was fighting uh, uh, Razor and all, then when he fought Sid for the title and stuff, uh, was it Jose Lothario? I think that might have been it. He was a good guy manager. Uh, my, uh, Michael Hayes. Michael Hayes was with uh, Doc Hendricks. You mean? Yeah, that's right, Doc Hendricks. <laughs> that was not Michael Hayes because that's not the the Michael T. S. Hayes we all know and love. But he was a good guy at that time. Yes, he was. Um, and actually, weren't the oddities a like a, a baby face, goofy faction? They were, and Luna was there with them. Was so Luna would have been a good manager for them. Right? Yes. And hey, Jimmy Hart managed Hulk Hogan when he was in the red and yellow. The only time that he was ever good. Yeah. And then how how sad. Right. But yeah, that you know, you know somebody else that uh I always just and, and this is just going off that I always reminded me of Jim Cornette and his personality was remember Harvey Whippleman? Oh no, no. I don't know Harvey Whippleman. I'm gonna tell you who I know. Downtown Bruno from Fort Duquesne Boulevard, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Like Mama says, it bees that way sometimes. Uh, Downtown Bruno, baby. Man, uh, that's Harvey Whippleman. The, the managers, and of course, you know, we talked about Paul Heyman, but back in the day, they were so good because they could make break a wrestler. Gary Hart, man, in a uh, world class. Um, you look at Mr. Fuji, man. Look at all. He had the Orient Express. He had Yokozuna and Demolition. That's right. And the Orient Express, Tanaka, 
Pat Tanaka, underrated worker, bro. Or you know that when Fuji had him, but Yokozuna, hard to believe that that Samoan could be that good of a Japanese sumo wrestler. Ain't no doubt, man. Well, Paul Ellering was a good guy for the most part when he was, you know, with the LOD. So, well, trade. Let's. I'm gonna tell mine five through one, and then I want you to tell yours real quick. Okay. So number five, I had Sensational Sherry. Number four, I had Paul Bear, Percy Pringle, whatever you want to call him. Number three, <laughs> Jimmy. The mouth of the South. Jimmy Hart. I had Paul Heyman for two, and I had Bobby the Brain Heenan for number one. All right. You ready? Go ahead. Trey's number five was Percy Pringle, Paul Bear, give or take whichever one. The mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart at four. James J. J.J. Dillon, number three of the four horsemen. Jim Cornette, number two. And Paul E. Dangerously, Paul Heyman, number one, were mine. So, Peter, looks like we had three of the same. That's pretty good, man. Yeah, for guys who watch different eras of wrestling and coming up with the same stuff. Uh, just just shows you, you know, that if anybody ever needs a wrestling historian at their museum, call me or Trey. We, we're your huckleberry. Trey's about to retire. He'd like to do that. Well, look, hey, guess what? Tomorrow morning is my last day to go, go to work. There you go, man. Yeah, and I told him I get there when I get there, and I'm leaving when I get ready. They can't fire me. Well, I heard that, brother. Well, I'm gonna tell you, this guy's about to go drive a bus, so I'm gonna call it a night. Trey, anything last you want to say? Yeah, I hope Ashley gets the feeling better because I got the uh, failure to communicate speech waiting on him. But hey, I enjoyed it with you, Peter. Yeah, man, me too. Don't forget Widow Fest, March 15th and 16th. Bell times at seven. You can see one half of the Rock and Roll Express and Robert Gibson down there. Trey, I will see you next week, my friend. Take care. Hey, keep our fingers crossed. Nobody dies in the next two days. That's correct, man. All right, brother. All right, bye. Bye.